Welcome to Psychedelia. I'm your host, Georgette, and I combine storytelling from diverse voices and cutting-edge science from researchers to ignite a conversation and remove the stigma around psychedelics. If you're curious about psychedelics or a self-proclaimed psychonaut, this podcast is for you. For the second episode of Psychedelia, I'm so excited to share with you the inspirational story of Todd Youngs, who's a recovering alcoholic and addict who has been free from his addictions for over 11 years. He is a recovery coach and spiritual director who works intensively with others using multiple treatment modalities. He is active in his local recovery community as well as in the sobriety movement more broadly. He is the co-founder of an organization called Recovery Nexus that seeks to create a unique outreach program to help the addicted population. And recently, he has begun working as a consultant with Project New Day as part of the foundation's efforts to conceptualize and implement new approaches to addiction that utilize psychedelics. He is a joyful member of an ayahuasca church and he takes special care to build healthy bridges with other traditions. Without further ado, my interview of Todd Youngs. Todd, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you taking your time out of the day to kind of tell me your story. Uh, And welcome to Psychedelia, by the way. I'm I'm really pleasure. Uh, it's really a great pleasure for me to be here with you, and I'm looking forward to a, a fruitful conversation. Yeah. So you know, I'm super interested in your life journey and uh, how it motivated you to do the work that you're doing now. So could you just retell me your story of of how you got to where you are right now? I'll just give you a few minute version. And then if you want to explore things in greater detail, um, we can do that. Yeah. So in terms, in terms of the most like, um, substantive parts of my journey that led me to where I'm right now and the kind of work that I do, I would just say, well, first of all, I'm, uh, you know, I'm gratefully recovering alcoholic and addict. Um, I was chronically addicted to heroin and other powerful opioids for over 20 years. I was a heavy user of cocaine and crack, um, also as well as amphetamines, methamphetamines, and tranquilizers. I also displayed uh, a very ugly and Mr. Hyde form of alcoholism. Uh, I saw the inside of a jail cell 12 times, I believe, prison once, um, the psych ward once. I was in at least a half a dozen treatment centers. Um, I was on methadone maintenance five separate times. I was on Suboxone once. I was on Subutex once. Uh, Also through those years, I sought out at different times um, psychiatric care in in the desperate hopes of remedying some of the depression and anxiety and hopelessness that I was experiencing which I came to find out was mostly related to my substance abuse problems. Um, in any case, uh, through the course of that, I found you know sort of temporary relief in some of those, in some of those approaches. Temporary is the key word here. 
um, I, during the course of pretty much a quarter of a century, I, I really got heavy in 1985. That's when I began smoking crack cocaine. And then I, I got clean in 2009 and I pretty much had an uninterrupted run except for those times in jail treatment centers, uh, or other, uh, uh, sort of physical, um, periods of incarceration. Um, during that time, I, I suffered collapsed veins. I lost nearly half of my teeth, contracted hepatitis C, um, was largely unemployable, or I, as I like to call myself, an unemployable head case. I, I had un, very unstable romantic relationships and entanglements and such. Um, I, many of my dearest friends died of addiction-related causes. Um, and so that was kind of the, the, the template of my life. Um, and I kind of stumbled along that way, sometimes improving, but always continuing to end up, my, my trajectory, I guess I'll say, was downward. And so, um, yeah, so finally through, through uh, experience of profound and unending pain and suffering, with the addition of a bright light of hope and love that shined into my life in early 2009, I, I, I had what I like to call, uh, one could call it a born-again experience, but I, I know that carries a sort of heavy connotation for a lot of people, but I was in effect raised from the dead. And so since 2009, my, my technical sobriety date is May 9th, 2009. And so from there, life has been, has been renewed on, on every level. I'm kind of curious, uh, what led you down this path of addiction? Like, when did this, when did this start? How, how did it get to, to having tried all those drugs? Okay, my temperament, as a, even as a young child, I was very curious. Um, and, as, you know, there's a phrase that says, sometimes curiosity kills the cat. I... That was, yeah. that was kind of relevant, very highly relevant to me. I, I was raised, I had two very loving parents. They did divorce when I was young, um, but I had loving parents and a loving extended family. Uh, so I wasn't, I, I wasn't suffering deprivation in that sense. Um, one, one might argue that they, my parents almost loved me to death in, in the fact that I was well supported and very secure in my relationship with them and, and with the world. I, I had a lot of friends growing up. But like I said, going back to, to my, in my particular case, my intense curiosity for many things, it could have been for, for just experiences in general, life, travel. My dad lived over, well, I was born in Germany and, and my dad stayed on there after my parents got a divorce. But my, I had a great appetite for, you know, peak experiences and other things that were enriching and aesthetically interesting. But part of that uh, interest on my part also extended to altered states of consciousness. And so what began mostly as experiment, you know, experimentation with things like, you know, cannabis and LSD and mushrooms when I was a teenager, um, in, in my case, my curiosities led me into other areas with other substances that turned out to be far more hazardous in terms of their ability to create addiction. And uh, I did have some alcoholism in my family, although not the nuclear family. Both of my uncles were 
very much chronic alcoholics by the time they were in their teens. And so I might've had an, un, might've had a genetic predisposition towards that, but nobody else in my immediate family was alcoholic. Um, so one thing led to another and um, my desire to explore rarefied states of consciousness led me into things like crack cocaine, which led into heroin, which, you know, um, methamphetamines, this was all back in the eighties. Um, and those things just ended up having a very, very profoundly devastating effect on my life. And then alcoholism developed when I was in my twenties. And so for, that's how I got where I got. I basically was a creator of most of my own problems. So the, the harder drugs like cocaine, opioids, did that start in high school as well? Or was that post high school? Freshman year of college. So I graduated from high school in, in Southern Missouri. Um, right after graduation, I, I noticed I had a sensitivity to even uh, to, to cocaine, even when just used in a sort of social sniffing kind of a way. But when I moved to Seattle in 1985, in September of 1985, I smoked crack for the first time and noticed I really, really liked it, much to my later detriment. And then that led into injecting cocaine, which then led to using heroin, which incidentally was used to sort of combat some of the side effects of shooting coke and smoking crack. This will make sense to people that have been in that world that know how those two drugs often, while they're very different qualitatively, um, are used often together uh, synergistically. So that was my, that was the that was my trajectory there. And then um, you know, I, I guess the rest is history. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned May 9th, two thousand nine, is your uh, sobriety anniversary. What happened on that day, or what what happened leading up to that day that you had that kind of reborn? Uh, experience. Okay. So to, by the time, you, the, especially the, well, the last, t honestly, 10 years of my uh, drinking and using, I, I was in various states of discombobulation. Uh, I was living uh, for the last five years from 2005 until 2009. I was living back at my mom's house. I had been rendered unable to really live life effectively but in early 2009, I had the opportunity to sit in an ayahuasca ceremony down in New Mexico. I, I went with a friend of mine who happened to be a surgeon. And at that time, I was still physically dependent on opiates. I was still a chronic alcoholic. In preparation for that ceremony, I didn't drink alcohol for a couple of days. And I took the bare amount of opiates necessary to prevent withdrawal, but not to really create any kind of uh, intoxication. I went... I had a stirring experience, not overly powerful, but um, a, a, I like to put it like this. A seed began to grow then. It began to untie some of the, the pains I had caused myself in my life, which kept me in my addiction. I mean, and began to sort of thaw out emotional centers that I had let die. And it also gave me hope too. So very quickly though. So there was a time, there was three months between that initial ceremony and then me actually, uh, my sobriety date. So in that ensuing period, I went on a few crack binges. I was back, you know, I was on opiates anyway. I was drinking heavily and managed to drink myself 
into jail, blacked out. And um, when I came to in the jail cell, in the drunk tank, it was as though the seed that had been planted during the ayahuasca ceremony all of a sudden came to life. And I began to receive my, my inner teacher, I guess we could put it that way, began to talk to me and console me. And I was in a heap of uh, withdrawal misery uh, coming off of alcohol and off of opiates. And at that time, also some benzodiazepine tranquilizer dependency. But during that period of intense pain, I began to understand and see my life in a different way. I felt the love of spirit. And um, that is, and also a strong conviction that what I was going to do is become involved in 12-step recovery. And simultaneously, I was going to continue to drink ayahuasca as a way to deepen and expand and enlarge and literally teach me about myself and teach me about um, God as I understood God at that time. And so those are the series of things that happened for me in, in the fir- first half of 2009. My, my sobriety date is May 9th. That's the last, the last time I had a drink of alcohol and it's the last time I was physically dependent on drugs. So I have been addiction-free and alcohol-free since then. Mm-hmm. And you said your your mentality before having before sobriety was that you were very depressed. You had a lot of anxiety, hopelessness. You were you had a lot of problems with with you know addiction to to different drugs. Just your complete mentality on life was was different, com- drastically different than after right. sobriety, after you had that realization. It was a realization, uh, spiritual awakening. It was coming to terms with with my past, what I had done with my life, and this great sense that I could feel the beauty again in my life. I, I knew growing up that life could be beautiful. I, like I said, I had a loving family. I knew there were, and, and even through my addicted years, I was a great lover of music. I was a great lover of traveling and in experiencing the joy of other human beings. But I had lost that mostly due to my own, I mean, my own addiction made me untrustworthy, made me unreliable, completely deranged my uh, neurochemistry. So I was host to lots of depression and anxiety, primarily because I was rearranging my brain chemistry so drastically and so incessantly and relentlessly that I was... uh, a psychological and neurochemical mess. So, but when with sobriety, with the onset of sobriety, through the action of the ayahuasca, really, I attribute that was what began to peel the layers of my onion back and reinstill a sense of hope and a belief that that life was good. And and so, and I work with that. And I, you know, like I'd mentioned, I, I work in a 12-step process and in a 12-step recovery community and relearned the language of spirit there. I I relearned the language of the heart and reconnected with old friends, the ones that were still alive, that is, reconnected with family, uh, reconnected with the opportunities and the goodness in life. Truly transformative. (laughs) Transformation. Definitely. And had you thought about 
doing ayahuasca before 2009 or had you done ayahuasca before 2009? No. My, I, I mean, I touched on this a little bit earlier. When, throughout my life, I was, I was involved with psychedelic drugs at different times in a more um, counterculture I'm not going to say hedonistic way, but recreational way. And I did experience a lot of good things from psychedelics, but I, I obviously it wasn't sufficient to keep me from becoming a drug addict. So whatever I, lesson I was trying to, or I might've been getting back when I used psychedelics as a, as a, as a practicing addict, I was still using psychedelics on the side as part of my lifestyle. Um, when it came time to have the opportunity for ayahuasca, there was still, it wasn't that widespread in the United States. If it, you know, access to ayahuasca was much less than, than it is now. There were the ayahuasca churches. There were some small circles that were do, had been doing things for, you know, going back into the 1990s, but it was pretty much underground unless people could travel to South America. So me living in my mom's um, basement without a job the idea of traveling to South America was out of the question. And so I, although I knew what ayahuasca was and, and I knew a little bit about it as just being this sort of legendary um, drink from the Amazon that was used by shamans, I, I didn't think of that I could have any access. Well, and, and this is where there's a kind of a, a serendipity here that through a surgeon friend, he, I, in conversation with him, he could see that I, I was kind of like, not going anywhere in life. And one thing led to another. So I went with him to New Mexico because he knew people there that worked with it. And I really owe, I'm just deeply indebted and have deep gratefulness to him and to the facilitator at that ceremony in, in January 31st, 2009. But honestly, I got to, just to clarify, I, when the, the topic of coming up to drink ayahuasca came up or the opportunity was there, I, my like terminally cynical, chronically addicted and alcoholic self didn't really think that another psychedelic visionary journey could really change my life. I didn't, I, I just didn't believe that that's what was going to happen. Because you had already been doing psychedelic drugs on the side. Yes. All throughout my whole life. I mean, I, I characterize, I used to call myself like many people do a psychedelic warrior you know, I had hundreds of trips with LSD and mushrooms and MDMA. MDMA is not a classic psychedelic, but it's still within the same universe. And so I did think I had a lot of experience. And so that I felt like, well, how could it possibly be all that different? You know, I mean, how is it going to really resolve my heroin, cocaine and alcohol problems? Well, I just didn't know what I didn't know. And, and I'm, and now I know better. Now it's almost as though that, like I was just saying, the, the, it almost seemed like the cosmos was providing for me. And, you know, I was a broken human. I, I could not go on, I, I, you know, and I found my solution. And it came, and it came interestingly, and uh, through an ayahuasca ceremony and a series afterwards. So I sat with ayahuasca many more times because I had a lot of stuff to learn, a lot to unlearn, unlearn, excavate, discover, um, discard. It was so much learning that had to be done. And so, yeah. So what was your series of ayahuasca ceremonies? Like after your sobriety date, 
how many more times did you do it? Um, and how far apart were they? Okay. In the first six months, this would be beginning at May 9th, 2009. In the first six months of being sober, I drank ayahuasca 18 times. So three times per month. Uh, and that, it was during, that was the period of very, very deep and intense growth. I was changing rapidly. I was taking what I was learning and seeing from the sessions themselves and utilizing that as the material for the 12 step work. I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with what 12 steps are, but as the, as the psycho spiritual path, there's a lot of, it, it's, there's a lot of work that is done there. Um, and the ceremonies themselves provided the material to work with parts of myself, you know, my own biography, my own neurochemistry, because there are some, you know, beneficial side effects just neurochemically to ayahuasca, reduces depression, helps to rebalance uh, various neurotransmitters like, you know, do dopamine and serotonin and so forth. And then also very importantly, it deepened my sense of what spirit meant to me, what it meant to live a spiritual life, what it was like to pray. The, the ceremonies opened my heart and my mind to the power of prayer and to the practice of prayer and meditation. And so I became very involved in a, anything that I could use to nourish my, my soul and my body, I got into. And that was very much motivated by the session, the ceremonies themselves. But something I've learned, I learned then was that a momentary reflection or a momentary insight that is not followed by action will more than likely just evaporate as just one more uh, interesting experience. And so this is where the 12 step part became extremely valuable because there's in 12 steps, there's reflection and then there's action. And, and so for me, that became the perfect framework to put into, you know, to put into my life and in my daily living that enabled the experiences that I was having with ayahuasca to be translated into a new life. And so that, and that's where I learned things about, about addiction, how to work with others, the importance of um, contemplation and action. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure. Did that answer your question? Maybe I spoke more than I needed to. No, <laughs> no, this, no, this was, this was great. Thank you. And so yeah. during those six months, uh, when you did ayahuasca 18 times and you were incorporating the 12 step, uh, program mm -hmm. as well into your life, um, mm -hmm. how difficult was it to stay sober those first six months? And was there anything else that, that was helping you? in your journey? Well, oddly, um, I know that it's a common story that people have a very difficult time in their first six months. For me, I didn't. I, I literally had a psychic change with respect to alcohol and drugs of abuse. I 
so I didn't find it difficult at all. It seemed like the combination, the combination of the regular ayahuasca ceremonies along with prayer, meditation, and the daily practice that comes through practicing 12-step process, as well as being surrounded in a, in a recovery community that reinforces the goodness of, uh, of that way of sober life. I didn't struggle. I literally did not think about drinking and, and, and shooting drugs anymore. It's really, and, and that's kind of the part of the miracle of, of my early uh, journey into recovery is that it was like all of a sudden one day, I mean, I, wanna, I, don't want, I don't wanna make it sound like I was just zapped, cured or healed, but I didn't struggle. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. I had all of this, these tools at my disposal and, and ayahuasca being one of those tools. And so it kind of removed that part of me that was always craving. Even in the times when I was in jail, I was always thinking about drinking immediately upon getting out or taking drugs, opioids preferably, but many other things, cocaine, methamphetamine, tranquilizers, so on and so forth. I did not, I, I, I was different. I was definitely, and that's why I, I throw in the word uh, reborn because I was a new person, um, which yeah, I'm, I'm grateful that it happened that way. Yeah, it really does sound, I mean, it sounds like a miracle, but I mean, it's not just a miracle. You you put in a lot of work, all those sure. ayahuasca ceremonies, sticking with the 12-step program. It's, it's not just a one-time thing that's going to solve everything. It definitely takes a lot of hard work, and that's that's very admirable. Well, I, and that's the point that I like to make with people. I am a happily recovering person now, but I also cultivate a life of quote unquote sobriety. I don't, I don't deceive myself with the idea that some of those things I will return to. Um, and, and so I'm vigilant about carrying on with the things that brought me this far. I know that the, the disorder of addiction is really deeply rooted in our brain chemistry and some of the old neural structures that were involved with active addiction, while those neural structures are no longer predominating in my life, I know that if I activate them again, I could get myself into serious trouble. And, and so I'm very careful about that. And, and I've received some, you know, so I don't, I don't have any illusions. Nothing go back to shooting heroin or, or, or smoking crack, or in my case, drinking alcohol, because I was one of the worst. No, I'm definitely alcoholic. I, I'm not just a problem drinker. I was, I had a very, very specific reaction to the presence of alcohol in my system, and it was very bad. Um, and so th while all those things were part of my past, I just do my best now that I don't ever engage in those kinds of behaviors or those substances again. And I reckon if I do that, my life will continue to, um, unfold rather than unravel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so you're, you're, you're now a recovery coach and spiritual director. Could you tell me a little yes. bit about your work in, in those two roles? Okay. As a, as a recovery coach, um, through these last 11 years, I'm, I'm very, I'm familiar with multiple ways of approaching addiction or, um, Obviously, I have a special fondness for 12-step recovery, but I'm conversant in cognitive behavior therapy. Uh, I utilize some elements of mo what's called motivational interviewing, 
I'm pretty fluent in Buddhist recovery principles uh, and then knowledgeable about how mindfulness can benefit people that are seeking to recover. So as a recovery coach, I bring a variety of my own knowledge and understanding and experience with addiction myself, some of the neurologic, neurochemical um, correlates that are involved with that, but also some of the psychological and spiritual tools that can be utilized to overcome that, that seemingly hopeless state of mind and body that addicts often uh, experience. So as a recovery coach, I work with people in a, in a talk type way, as an encouraging way. I'm a coach, not necessarily, I'm not a therapist, but here again, so I, I give people guidance on what tools they might apply. First of all, assessing the severity of someone's addictive disorder. Some people are you know, moderate, some people are severe, some people are mildly afflicted with this condition. And so I try to work around according to people's needs and I become a guide to them as they seek uh, to live a, a sober and joyful life. Spiritual direction is a little bit more specific in that spiritual direction more is involved more with the, the peak experiences that are brought about through people sitting in psychedelic either sessions, whether or ceremonies, or different, um, well, different settings that they might experience that that kind of thing, and so there's a little bit more nuance to how to work with that because the way I look at sp- spiritual direction is how to assist the seeker to make contact with a god or higher power of their own understanding. And my experience in recovery is that. The first goal, the primary uh, object, objective, is to help people connect with their spiritual center, their authentic self. And spiritual direction is largely, that's, that's what its focus is. Now, and it's important to make the distinction that spiritual direction is not teaching, it's not preaching. It is a little, it's somewhere in between. It has a whole lot of things rolled into one. And, and, but it generally conducted by people that have had profound and dramatic life experiences through which they have come out on the other side stronger. And so different religious traditions in the world have the role of spiritual director, which sounds a lot more highfalutin than it really is because there's the word director there, but it's more. You, in a lot of ways, we're more like a spiritual uh, comrade or fellow traveler. We're just someone who's been traveling on this path for a little bit longer and has learned the uh, tricks of the trail. I see. And are you aligned with a specific religion or church or it, by spiritual director? Is it more of a all-encompassing spirituality? It's much more of an all-encompassing. Um, although I'm, I'm a member of the Santo Daime religion, which is an ayahuasca church from from Brazil. I'm actually I'm also a baptized Catholic, um, but in general, I don't approach spiritual direction from any particular religion lens. I here again, kind of like within recovery coaching, I I find a language that will work for the person who's seeking. I don't want to bring any, I'm not here to make converts, for, for example. 
because um, I, I, I think this is a highly personal thing. Each person that seeks to get sober or connect with their own higher power, it's a very individualized and personal experience to them. And I tried to keep my specific, like I said, uh, I, I come from those traditions, but I try to keep my specific beliefs separate because that's not really the important thing here. More important than a belief is the experience, the direct experience of spirit for someone who's seeking um, uh, a tra- transformation in their own life. Mm-hmm. And so when did you decide to become a recovery coach? When when did that journey start? I, um, two or three years ago. For the first for the first eight or nine years of my sober life, uh, I became gainfully employed again, but I, I did this simple light retail um, management and which enabled me to be primarily focused on my own recovery. And then I began to work with people in 12-step communities at a certain stage, which is totally non-professional, but as a what, what might be called a 12-step sponsor. I began to do that work and I continued my day job and gradually built my life, you know, put my life back together. Um, but that was when I was living in Missouri. And, and then I moved out to Seattle, Washington. I moved back here. You know, like I mentioned, I went to the University of Washington back in the mid 80s. But I, I moved back to Seattle in 2017 from Southern Missouri and embarked on a path. I was at the time wanted to create a, a outreach kind of like that we that I'm we're discussing right now to the addicted population. Um, and then I became a recovery coach in in the the, uh, the pursuit of advancing that that goal, that life goal. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I mean, Seattle definitely needs you. There is pretty big population of people that have addiction problems. And I can only imagine how rewarding it is to be able to help other people, you know, because you can empathize with, with their experience, with where they're at. Absolutely. If, and I say this without any, uh, without any overstatement or exaggeration, the greatest joy for me is to, to be, to have the privilege to be with someone as their eyes begin to open to the possibility of not only getting sober, but actually becoming really happy about it, to actually reconnect with a sense of joy. So for me, I get to vicariously experience the spiritual awakening of another person with whom I'm working, whether that's someone that I know through ayahuasca ceremonies or whether it's Santo Daime or other, other settings, but also have the privilege to work with them as their recovery coach or spiritual director. It really, really is extra special for me. And I consider it um, a great privilege just to, you know, to be able to, to be, to be that for someone else, to be that hand of help for someone else and voice of encouragement. Mm -hmm. And how involved are you with Santo Daimi? Do you now lead ayahuasca ceremonies as well? I'm, I'm just another, with the Santo Daimi, I'm a member and I, I participate with them a number of times out of the year. I used to be more involved 
Um, now I'm primarily with Central Dime for uh, uh, celebration services, which occur at certain times of the year, which are celebratory um, uh, Santo Daime worship services. I, I have led smaller ayahuasca circles. Um, and right now under COVID, there's not a whole lot of activity as far as all that goes. So that's been kind of um, in a state of suspended animation. We'll see what happens. In, well, we'll see what happens in 2021. Yeah, <laughs> we will see. Um, and so what kind of just like overall thoughts or guidance or tips, whatever you want to call it, do you have for people currently struggling with addiction or people who have loved ones struggling with addiction? First, the first message I give to people is that there is hope. As as bad as it seems and in fact is, I mean, because let's not forget, I mean, I, addiction, especially as it's manifested in its hardest, deepest forms, is deadly. People die. And so it can be very easy to to get overwhelmed with the sheer tragedy of loss that happens every day. And I've lost, I've lost many people that were close to me that I loved. So the mess, but the thing is, in spite of all that, there is hope people can find, people can find recovery. They can experience new life. And so my first message is that there is hope. And, and as hard as it may seem, you know, sometimes things that seem hard or they are hard, but they're worth it. The work necessary to recover is hard, but it is so worth it. And um, yeah, and I believe also the word of encouragement I give is that we're living in a time when there are expanded opportunities and ways and means of achieving sobriety. I think so many people for a variety of reasons fall through the cracks. And I don't mean just materially in a material sense, they can't, that they can't access good treatment, but just that in spite of all of the best efforts and energies given to treatment, it, it's really been difficult in the past to transmit a sense of willingness and hope to people that are in that that darkness of addiction. And so we do live in a time when a lot of different innovations, like we've been talking about right now, ayahuasca would be considered, although it's an ancient beverage, it is a it is new to the modern world in dealing with some of our modern problems. And so we're living in a time of some promise that um, there will be expanded and increasing opportunities to apply some of these, what might've been, maybe still are considered controversial, but they're, if they're effectively applied, that some of these new technologies can be helpful to a lot of people. And so I try to uh, carry that message too, that the, the landscape of how we treat, how we, how we treat addiction is, is uh, growing more rich and varied. And that's exciting. And just that fact in itself inspires hope in people. 
that if old ways didn't help them, maybe there are new ways coming that will. Yeah, I I completely agree with you on how important hope is, that there is hope, especially with these substances. And and I couldn't have said it better. They're old substances, but they're they're new to the modern world. And I oh, I guess one other, you know, one other uh message that I I can I want to share with is that I believe that it is, and this is going to sound almost a little bit maybe um, silly, but love is the answer to our problems. And love in its deepest and highest sense, it is, I have experienced myself and my observations of others, and I think a lot of the ongoing clinical trials with different uh, psychedelics for the purposes of treating a variety of ailments, one of the key uh, experiences that predicts success or efficacy is the encounter of what some call just love transcendent feeling of love that, that, that pervades life, even in its, even in its harsh forms, even though life can be, you know, with all of its um, difficulties and pain that, the overarching love that is sort of suffused in into our into our world, if we can encounter that in maybe a peak psychedelic state, that is going to be a greater predictor of whether or not that altered state is going to lead to an enduring personal change, transformation. And so I don't ever want to forget that, right? I want to always bring the message of love to all of this. Yes, we... We do need more love, especially in these crazy times that that we're living in right now. Right. Can't forget it. (laughs) Todd, thank you so much for sharing your story of hope, of light. I really appreciate it. And and it truly is um, just filled with courage. And it sounds, like I said, like a miracle, but... We both know it's not just a miracle, that it takes a lot of hard work. And I'm just very grateful to have had time to, to share your story. Well, well, thanks so much for having me on. It's been great fun. I'll look forward to connecting again soon. And I'm um, thankful for everybody that's listening, too. Um, if anything that I said was hopeful encouraging to anyone. I'm just grateful to to my higher power for, for that. Thank you, Todd. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, go to psychedeliapod.com where you can find links to all of my social media so you can connect with me. Whatever platform you're listening on, you can support me by hitting the subscribe button and sharing this with a friend. The next episode premieres in two weeks. Until then, I send you all positive vibes and have a trippy weekend. Music